This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe.com. With 23andMe's genetic service, you can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That is the number 23andme.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and it's October 18th. I'm very excited to be able to do another completely in-studio episode today for the continuation of our pitch week. Joining me in studio to discuss stock pitches from three of Fool.com's finest healthcare writers is Vince Shen. Vince, how's it going? I'm doing very well, and I'm very excited to be here uh, to talk about these healthcare companies. Well, thanks for joining me. Sure. So, we are about to hear about Novacure, ticker NVCR from Brian Feroldi, Foundation Medicine, ticker FMI from Todd Campbell, and Celgene, ticker CELG from Keith Spites. Austin, let's hear pitch one. So, my name is Brian Feroldi. I cover healthcare and technology for Fool.com. Uh, the company I'm talking about today is called Novacure. The ticker is NVCR. They are a $1.6 billion company or so, and they are a medical device maker that's focused on cancer. So, historically speaking, healthcare providers have had three tools to fight cancer there's surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. So, more than a decade ago, Novacure's founder discovered a brand new med- modality of treatment. So they called this discovery Tumor Treating Fields, or TT Fields for short. So in essence, Novacure discovered that surrounding a cancerous tumor with electric fields that are tuned to a specific frequency inhibits cell division. So as a result, a cancerous tumor that is surrounded by these TT fields has a much harder time growing and in some cases can even shrink. So Novacure's first target for this new therapy is a deadly type of brain cancer called glioblastoma multiform, or GBM. So Novacure took its knowledge of TT fields and won FDA approval for a product called Optune. So Optune kind of looks like a winter beanie hat with a cord coming out the back. So inside the hat that the patient wears on their head is transducer arrays that emit the electric fields when the device is turned on. So the patient puts the hat on, plugs the cord into a battery array and electronics kit that is carried around and is about the size of a lunchbox. And when turns it on, um, the device starts to emit these TT fields, and they go to work on the tumor inside their brain. So this modality of treatment is highly attractive for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, uh, using Optune is completely non-invasive and has no systemic toxicity issues. So you cannot say the same things about surgery, radiation, or chemotherapy. Anybody knows somebody that has gone through those treatments knows that they are highly invasive and can often have many side effects. So second, uh, Optune can be used by the patient right in the comfort of their own home. So there's no extra trips to the doctor's office. Once they they get started, they they literally use the product at home and live their life. And uh, finally, uh, Optune can be used by itself or it can be used in combination with other therapies. So that means that it's not a threat in any way to the big pharma companies that focus on cancer treatments. So there's no company out there that's really trying to to hold uh, TT fields down. So when I first learned of this technology, I was extremely skeptical uh, because it almost sounds like magic. You basically put the device on your head and somehow it, it it treats brain cancer. 
however, uh, Novacure produced some really interesting data early this year from a five-year study that showed that adding Optune to standard of care chemotherapy more than doubled five-year survival rates in patients with GBM. So that was really exciting, and that that, uh, study really helped to knock down some of the barriers to adoption. So fast forward to today, and Optune is on the market. It's now covered by more than 90% of uh, of healthcare plans, so the the device is actively being paid for. So as of uh, June, Optune was available in the U.S., Switzerland, Germany, Israel, and it just recently launched in Japan. Uh, About 1,400 patients were using Optune, and that figure grew 64% year over year. Uh, And since Optune costs $17,000 per month to use, that translates into more than $38 million million in revenue last quarter. So the opportunity in GBM is is quite large. So Optune has has 1,400 patients. Management believes that in its current markets, that its addressable market opportunity is about 13,000 patients. So that's a 10x growth opportunity. Uh, However, the thing that's really exciting about Novacure is that they believe TT fields can be used in many different types of cancer, too. So the company has several phase two or phase three studies going on right now using Optune in brain metastases, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, and mesothelioma. So to put those disease states in context, about 300,000 patients are diagnosed with those cancers in the U.S. alone each year. So if TT field works in those indications, as well as it does in brain cancer, the upside is massive. Now, this is an unprofitable company um, uh, at this point, which is the biggest risk. Uh, However, management believes that it can become profitable based on its GBM opportunity alone. And its, its, uh, its cash burn uh, is decreasing every year, and the company has $185 million in cash in its balance sheet. So they believe that should be plenty to get them to profitability without uh, having to raise any more capital. So again, the company is called Novacure, NVCR. Okay, Christine. So you know, I'm coming from this as a you know, complete beginner, very little experience going into the healthcare healthcare sector. And it was uh, a bit of a trial by fire, kind of like reading about these companies, trying to get a grasp of what they do and the implications of their various treatments. But this was a really interesting one to me. Um, I thought uh, it was very impressive what they're trying to do with this TT Fields technology and uh, going through the website and just seeing how uh, non-invasive it seems. Uh, the, the devices on the head, for example, it just looks kind of like a, a swim cap, essentially. And I was just curious, um, from what I was reading, it seems like in the past, uh, traditional treatment for cancers has been uh, with either the surgery, right, and then the chemotherapy or radiation. Do you feel like with this, uh, with Novacure's Optune, that they have managed to clear a hurdle in terms of acceptance. You know, you uh, speaking to you previously before the show, you seemed to show a little bit of skepticism. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I I do have a, a bit of skepticism sure. with this company because it just sounds absolutely insane. Like, put this this skull cap on, and it's going to get rid of your brain cancer. And of course, it's it's not quite that simple. Mostly what this cap is doing is prohibiting the tumors from growing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it does shrink them. But in general, it's going to be used alongside other more traditional therapies. And so, when I think about it from a doctor's perspective, 
I can see them using it in, in addition to the more traditional things as long as they know about it. And so I, I don't have a, a perfect knowledge of how much the, the doctors that treat this very particular form of brain cancer do know that this exists. But I have to imagine that because it's such a, a niche uh, disease, that there is a community of doctors that they do talk about uh, this kind of thing. And so hopefully they can share their experiences with each other and have word of mouth really do the marketing for this product. I mean, that's something that is a struggle for a lot of early stage healthcare companies where if you just have one product on the market, you might not have the gigantic marketing team. And so using that doctor community and the patient community as well is extremely important. And does that actually, um, you mentioned the marketing aspect of it, and just because uh, since the technology is so new and they've done some, they've had some uh, positive test results, but again, not uh, every medical professional might be aware of it and it's a, uh, how effective it might be. Um, besides the what I imagine to be uh, significant uh, research and development investments and the spending there, does marketing tend to be a pretty big, uh, I guess, expense line item for companies you know that are at this stage, maybe a billion dollars, uh, kind of small relatively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one more reason that you always want to be looking at the balance sheets of these companies to say, well, how much cash do they have on hand? And at what point are they going to be profitable? Something that Brian mentioned that I think is a very strong selling point for this company is that management thinks that it'll be profitable just based on this one indication alone. So that's without building in the expectation that it will get the label expansions. Um, cash burn is decreasing, he says. Uh, they've got $185 million in cash, and that should carry them all the way through to profitability. But that's not always the case in healthcare. Many times you see companies needing to issue a bunch more shares to pay for their marketing expenses or relying on a, a bigger partner to lay out an agreement where the partner will do the marketing for you, but they're going to take a cut of revenue. And so, uh, Novacure being able to avoid that is actually a pretty strong selling point. Okay. And um, I saw that the company uh, essentially. With the help of patents, um, which you know very common for these biotechs, uh, that the TT field treatment they kind of have that technology um, with those patents set to expire between 2021 and 2031. Um, I'm wondering, is that a comp- that seems like it? You know, that offers investors a pretty long-term view in terms of you know how this company can uh, essentially monetize this technology that they've created. Uh, is that a pretty good timeline? Like, how if I'm uh, trying to evaluate a company's drug pipeline and I see that oh their patents expire in the next two years or ten years, like what do you see as something that's secure uh, or like a, a stronger, I guess, amount of time for for these companies? Well, the longer the better, of, of course. course. Um, so this is a medical device more than it's a drug, and so it works a little bit differently. Um, I'm not a patent expert, so I'm not even going to begin to try to explain the differences. But something that I I will point out is that uh, the range of the time frame that you just said, 2021 to 2031, that's a pretty huge range. As an investor, if I were to look further into this company, I would want to drill into that and Mm -hmm. see, well, what is it? You know, is it that the main patent expires in 2021, or or is the main patent the one that's 2031? And maybe it's some smaller ones that other companies can begin to chip away at. I mean, it seems like this TT. Fields technology is something that's completely novel and completely their own. And I'm not sure how close another company would be able to get to duplicating it without infringing on their patents. Mm-hmm. So, remains to be seen. Okay. And my last question then um, is just in terms of 
uh, I guess, more of the risk factor. What do you think is the big challenge then, or the biggest risk factor that investors should potentially be cognizant of uh, for Novacure? I, I, w- I would answer that question by saying reimbursement. If you can't get payers, insurers to cover your device or your drug, you're not going to make it. You know, you you might be able to find a small market of people who are willing to pay out of pocket, but this is not a cheap device. So they will absolutely need to continue to work with insurers in each and every new indication that they hopefully do get this approved with. They do, I want to point out, have kind of an interesting monetization strategy with this, where it's a flat rate, it's a monthly charge, and that gets you the device, the consumables that go with it, and also the customer service for if something goes wrong. Sure. Which is kind of, I don't know, I think it's an interesting strategy. It's very much not in line with something that you see with the razor and blades model, where you have the device and then additionally you have people paying for the consumables. And I think that actually will be a strong selling point to insurers covering this, where Hey, you know exactly what you're going to pay. It's a flat rate. There's there's not going to be asterisks involved with it. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that won't be a huge risk, but it's definitely something that could really make or break this company. Awesome. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, and Africa. With your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to the places that reflect your DNA. Visit 23andMe.com fool. That's the number 23andme.com fool. What will be your DNA destination? All right, Austin, let's hear our second pitch. My name is Todd Campbell, and I am a fool covering healthcare. And today I want to talk to you about a company called Foundation Medicine. Symbol there is FMI. I think one of the most important things in that's going on right now in biotechnology is the shift away from diagnosing and treating cancer based on the location of origin. And I think increasingly over the course of the coming decade or so, we're going to be doing genetic screening that's going to inform doctors' decisions and help people get matched up with the appropriate treatment in the appropriate clinical trial. It's all going to be based on the biomarkers, the genetic code, the things that are responsible for the cancer's growth. If I'm right, then foundation medicine stands to benefit uh, tremendously. They're already the market leader in genetic screening of advanced cancer patients. They've got 35% market share and about $120 million in revenue over the course of the last 12 months. What makes this company really interesting, though, isn't already that it's got 35% market share. It's the size of the market opportunity. There are 1.1 million advanced cancer uh, patients in the United States, yet only 10 to 15 percent of them are currently being genetically screened. I really think that's going to change. And one of the things that will help it change is if they can win FDA approval for their platform this quarter, a decision is supposed to be announced. And if that happens, then Medicare is going to give them a distinct reimbursement code. Historically, when that happens, private insurers follow suit, and theoretically, the floodgates could open up for many more patients to get genetically screened. The thing that is also interesting about this company is it's got a very big 
uh, deep-pocketed partner. Roche already owns more than 50% of this company, and Roche is already selling foundations products outside the U.S. So this, I think, it's a little bit of a risky stock, but I think it's a stock that long-term growth investors might want to put in their portfolios for a long time, five, ten years, possibly. So this is another company that is on the smaller end of the market cap spectrum. Mm-hmm. FMI Foundation Medicine has a market cap of only around 1.5 billion, but it's working in this enormous blossoming space of genetic testing. As Todd points out in his pitch, this is the trend of of healthcare is to become more and more personalized. And so it sounds like Foundation Medicine has a pretty big potential growth traje- trajectory. It was here to. Uh, it was good to hear about this example because I actually remember a presentation that you gave at a recent Fool Fest uh, on this kind of the state of the healthcare industry and uh, some of the investment opportunities in that space. And I recall specifically that one of the big things that you were watching out for was increased personalization. And th- this was uh, a particularly tough one for me to kind of understand all the some of the technical details. You go through the 10K. There's a lot of very technical terms, things along those lines. But basically. From in my uh, in my, uh, I guess my view of what they offer, uh, and please correct me if I'm off base, is that they will receive kind of cancer cells or samples of one from uh, for a patient, and their labs will kind of perf- uh, create or uh, create the genomic profile uh, based on that sample, and then they can kind of uh, share that profile, and then the treatments that will fit that profile to the physician. Is that about right? Yeah. So what they're trying to do here is they are an, a next-generation uh, gene sequencing company, and they make this this thing called the Foundation One. That's the approval that Todd mentioned in his pitch. And so, that uses a computational analysis to determine if a patient has a biomarker that would then make them eligible for a personalized cancer medicine. Okay, okay. And um, I, for me, this seems like a, a really interesting opportunity. Management states a few times uh, in their filing that you know, foundation medicine is the only widely available portfolio of genomic profiling testing for routine cancer treatment. Um, you know, they seem to have this first mover advantage, and uh, they're a big chunk of market share. As Todd said, I think he said 35 percent in his pitch. Um, but he also mentioned uh, towards the end, he said uh, something about it being a little bit of a risky stock. So again, I kind of am curious to hear what do you think is the you know some of the big risks for this company, um, whether it's on the financial side, uh, whether they have uh, the sufficient cash reserves, like you mentioned, for some of these companies uh, that they need to have in order to reach that state of profitability, because they're not there right now. Yeah, as Todd mentioned, reimbursement, again, is going to be my answer here. Um, But that could also be a huge opportunity for them if they're able to secure that reimbursement. Uh, I believe I I saw at one point they had an agreement with United Healthcare, which is one of the the giant insurers in the U.S., to cover Foundation One. Um, Another risk that I'll point out, though, is competition. Um, there's there are other companies in this space like Myriad Genetics and Illumina, and they all slide into the space in slightly different niches. But if you look at a company like Illumina, for example, their market cap is somewhere near thirty billion, and Foundation, I'll remind you, is one point five billion. So you could look at that as either a threat, where Illumina could very easily try to do what uh, Foundation is already doing and do it on their own and do it better and just outmuscle Foundation. Sure. Um, or you could look at that as an opportunity where, hey, Foundation Medicine is an entrant into this space that has the opportunity to maybe get as big as Illumina. Okay. Uh, and my last question, um, or I guess my last uh, 
the last thing that I'd like to kind of get your perspective on, uh, you know, they seem to have this uh, relationship with Roche, huge healthcare company. I think it was some, uh, when I looked at it, it was over two hundred billion dollar market cap, um, and uh, Roche owns about sixty percent of Foundation Medicine, from what I could find. Um, what kind of role uh, do you think? Roche is likely to play in Foundation's future. Is this kind of common? Uh, common in terms of these massive healthcare companies investing uh, in smaller, uh, in these smaller players, and kind of trying to get a piece of this technology or or maybe innovative service that they're offering. I am so glad that you brought this up. This was the most interesting part of researching this company to me was figuring out what is Roche doing here, what's their strategy, is this a good thing for Foundation? So Roche took a stake in 2015 that gave them about half of the company. And their strategy was to be fairly hands-off with it. They were going to help out with some marketing outside of the US. They would give foundations money, but they mostly wanted them to be independent. They have only three out of the nine seats on the board, for example. And this is so reminiscent of their relationship with Genentech, which was a a drug maker that they previously had a 56% stake in and then bought. And the stake that they have in foundation, 56%. 56%. So, very interesting to watch that develop. Um, in general, when I see a larger partner uh, come in and guide a, a smaller player, that to me is a, a bullish sign that people who know what they're doing and know what they're talking about in this space want to, to help out one of the smaller players mm-hmm. developing their product and making sure that the company succeeds. Hopefully, it's a win-win for both of these companies. Roche is a huge player in oncology, and as we talked about, the way that oncology is trending is towards personalized medicine. Sure, Roche has a whole slate of personalized gene, uh, gene-specific therapies, and so yeah, I I will be interested to see what goes on here. Um, Roche actually did try to buy out Illumina years and years ago, so I, I do think that they have their eye on Foundation. I don't know what's keeping them from just buying the company outright, but I would not be surprised to see an acquisition. Okay, cool. All right, on to our third and final pitch of the day. Hi, I'm Keith Spites, and I cover healthcare. And there are three things that I look at when evaluating a commercial stage biotech stock. One is the current product lineup. Second is the pipeline prospects for the biotech. And third is the ability of the company to bolster both of those, to be able to go externally and find candidates to add to its current product portfolio or to its pipeline. And one stock that I think checks off all three of those boxes in a great way is Celgene. First of all, with its current products, we have to talk about Revlimid. Revlimid is a just blockbuster blood cancer drug for cell gene. Sales continue to grow. In fact, projections are that over the next five years, Revlimid will become the top-selling cancer drug in the world. So that's a nice thing to have in your feather in your cap for cell gene. Uh, it's not just Revlimid though. Cell gene has another blood cancer drug that's a blockbuster, Pomalus. It's actually growing faster than Revlimid. Staying in the oncology area, the company has a solid tumor drug, Abraxane, that's knocking on the door of being a blockbuster. So, Celgene is really strong in the oncology space. But the company also is making waves in the inflammation and immunology area. It has Otesla, which is growing by leaps and bounds, is becoming a great drug in the autoimmune disease space. So, Celgene has quite a few solid blockbuster drugs in its lineup. On the pipeline, things look in some ways, even better. The company has 10 candidates 
that are expected to be approved within the next five years, all of which have blockbuster potential. Four of those have mega blockbuster potential. They could achieve sales of $2 billion, in some cases quite a bit more. One of the top ones that I really like is Ozanamide. Ozanamide's in a couple of late-stage trials, one for multiple sclerosis, another for uh, ulcerative colitis. should be a, just a crown jewel for cell gene in just a few years. And then on the blood cancer space, they've got uh, Luspatercept, which kind of rolls off the tongue, unlike some of the drugs out there. Uh, could be another great blood cancer drug for cell gene. And then thirdly, we look at how can the company bolster its current products or its pipeline. And Celgene's in great shape on that front as well. At the end of the second quarter, Celgene had about $10 billion, actually a little over $10 billion in cash. That's going up. The company's cash flow is absolutely terrific. And one thing I really like about Celgene, they have 47 partnerships with other companies, both big and small. So they have this great ecosystem that can bring them new candidates into the fold. So so Celgene's in great shape on three of the main categories I look at, and I highly recommend this biotech stock. So we've covered two small cap companies, and yes. then Keith pivoted us to one of the biggest drug makers <laughs> in the space. So this will be a very different conversation. What did you think? Uh, I really appreciated that he laid out uh, those three kind of evaluation criteria that he looks at when he's uh, evaluating these biotechs. And as you said, this is obviously the most established and largest of the three pitches that we've heard so far. Um, I was. It's incredible how uh, the company has multiple treatments at this point, I think clearing a billion dollars, if not far more than that annually. Um, And I guess uh, in this case, when you have a company that has this established product lineup, and uh, I think something like 10 really strong drug candidates, he said blockbuster candidates in the pipeline, is the big risk factor then uh, going, is it poor trial outcomes for those products in the pipeline, or are there other things to kind of consider here? Yeah, uh, that's that's definitely a big risk. Is that the expectations for these potential blockbusters might already be baked into the stock, and so if something goes wrong, then it'll drastically remove the value prop for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, also, point out that patents are always going to be something to consider when you're looking at the drugs that have already been approved. Sure, um, there's plenty of talk about Revlimid's patent and how strong that is, how long it'll hold up. These kinds of things are often played out in courts. You know, when when will generic competition actually be able to get on the market and start eating away at market share. Okay. At that point, also, will it be able to steal away share? These are always considerations to have in mind um, and, and risk factors that are there. But something that I really like about Celgene is that by spreading out their bets across this huge portfolio of partnerships, they're actually minimizing their downside risk pretty considerably. They're okay. they're offloading that risk onto the smaller companies by saying, hey, yeah, we'll fund some of your development and we'll be there for you to market your drug if it gets approved. But if you completely flop, eh, we're only out a couple hundred million dollars or whatever the initial investment is. And we talked earlier about that sort of partnership and how it's pretty prevalent in the healthcare world. Celgene is the master of this. like That is their playbook to make this sort of smaller investment in very early stage companies with huge upside, but limiting their downside. Very cool. I was actually going to ask you um, kind of about the development pipeline and how uh, companies kind of approach this, whether uh, the drugs in their pipeline tend to be developed in-house, whether they tend to acquire them. But it sounds like it's some combination. In this case, Celgene is really skilled in terms of leveraging leveraging these early stage partnerships. Um, but beyond those three 
criteria that Keith mentioned uh, for evaluating companies like this. I'm curious how much weight you put on something like management quality or experience, because um, I feel like with the complexities of the drug trials, uh, the huge resources that get put into things like uh, research and development, uh, I'm just wondering if you see good management as offering something in terms of like an X factor versus just the quality of what uh, the treatments they're offering. Yep. So Todd and I have done twice now, I believe, an episode on uh, something about like lightning in a bottle. Can these CEOs catch lightning in a bottle again? Meaning, mm-hmm. the show, the show both times profiled a handful of companies to ask whether or not they'll be able to be successful again because their leaders were previously successful in the biotech world. So it's definitely something that we watch out for with. Celgene in particular, what I really like about their management is that they're very trustworthy. This is a management team that several years ago laid out their expectations all the way through 2020, which wow. is not something that you generally see at all, much less in healthcare, where there is so much that's dependent on pipeline blowups and patent litigation and, and all these other question marks. But Celgene has already said, we have a goal of $13 billion in revenue for next year. We would like to make $21 billion in revenue in 2020. Uh, for context, they made $11 billion in 2016. And generally, they have hit the mark for years. This is not a company that overinflates their expectations to try to drive up investor sentiment. They're, they're very trustworthy. If anything, they will keep their numbers a little bit depressed and then try to, to uh, exceed them. Okay. Um- this is my last question then, and it kind of uh, speaks more broadly to, I guess, uh, just these three pitches, but other investment opportunities in the healthcare space. Um, for other listeners, uh, similar to myself, who might not be as familiar with the sector, but uh, think that the opportunities and the advances that we've seen in medicine are, are a really good place to put um, your investment money, um, would a sector, do you think a sector focused fund can sometimes be a better choice? Uh, Rather than trying to understand all the intricacies and complexities of obviously like these three very different uh, companies, both in size, their different treatments, what do you think about that? I think that's tough, and it depends how much work you want to put into it. Sure. So the index that I follow to track biotech is called the IBB. Um, it's the iShares Biotechnology Index. There are a lot of really junky companies in the <laughs> IBB. And so my theory is if you can weed them out and only hold on to the best of the best, maybe the ones that have proven management or the ones that have partnerships from larger companies with a lot more money to help them out with their their trials and their marketing. Mm-hmm. You should be able to outperform that index, but again, it, it depends on how much you want to put into it and also how much risk you want to take on because this is somewhat of a gamble sometimes. I mean, even if you've done all of your research and you are completely responsible in making these decisions, you can't predict every pipeline blow up. It, sure. You're just going to get knocked down off your feet every once in a while in this industry. It's how it goes. So, if you can create a well diversified portfolio of individual stocks, I think you'll do better than if you were to buy the index, but that does take a lot of work. And so, it's really up to you how much risk you want to take on in, in return for that potential larger upside and how much homework you want to do. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Thank you so much for being here, Vince. This has been fun. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Vince Chen, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!